This is the Downey's DM Podcast. Okay, hello everybody. I am here with Daria Thompson, possibly Daria Thompson-Signalti. We'll get the information there. To talk today about acute otitis media. And Daria's actually an old friend of mine. We were med students together at Tufts. She married one of my best friends. It's great to have some old colleagues and friends and acquaintances on the podcast. So, Daria, welcome to the podcast. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Uh, Thanks for having me. So I'm Dr. Daria Thompson, and I, like Jason mentioned, um, met my husband at Tufts Medical School. His name is Michael Signalfi, which is the why we're talking about Thompson Signalfi. I actually kept just Thompson because I think it rolls off the tongue a little bit better. (laughs) It does. Yes, that's true. So um, I am now a pediatric hospitalist. I work at Tufts Medical Center Floating Hospital for Children here in Boston. And uh, most of my clinical time actually is in a community south of the city called Brockton, where I work with a community that has a lower socioeconomic status and many immigrants from Haiti, Brazil, and Cape Verde. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you for joining us. You're the perfect person to talk today about ear infections. So yeah, we're going to be talking about acute otitis media and sort of the inspiration for this podcast was... The fact that I feel like it's kind of an equivocal diagnosis, you can have a few people looking at the same ear, coming up with different opinions about it. My personal belief that we are probably over-calling it and over-prescribing antibiotics. So it's a topic that I thought we should dive into. So Daria, I'm going to start with uh, outlining three clinical scenarios. Then we're going to talk about the elements of acute otitis media and come back to the scenarios to see what we think. Sound good to you? Sounds perfect. Awesome. All right, so scenario one. 22-month-old girl comes in with fever and acting irritable. Mom says no real cough, a little bit of runny nose all winter long, you know, status quo for these little guys. Fever was one, uh, sorry, fever was 38.8 this morning and then tactile in the afternoon, each time controlled pretty easily with Tylenol. Looks well, normal vital signs, but the last Tylenol was a couple hours ago and the right ear is erythematous, bulging, and has an effusion. All right, so scenario two. A four-year-old boy comes in with complaint of ear pain. Mom knows he's been complaining of an earache yesterday and in through to today, and so they come in to be evaluated. He's well-appearing without fever, and the left TM has the appearance of some of pacifications, maybe a little bit of scarring, and an effusion. So that's scenario two. Final scenario, scenario three, is an 11-year-old girl who comes in with cough, runny nose, fever, and ear pain. She has a fever of 101.4, or, uh, that was earlier today. Uh, she shows a lot of rhinorrhea on exam, has a dry cough, but normal lung auscultation. Both ears are erythematous. The left is more so than the right, and the left has an effusion. All right, so with those cases in mind, let's talk acute otitis media. First, there's a couple definitions here that are important to outline that I didn't even realize uh, these differentiations until I started diving into the podcast. So first, there's acute otitis externa, which is an infection and inflammation of the external auditory canal. Then we talk about otitis media with effusion, which is essentially an effusion within the middle ear, uh, not necessarily with signs of inflammation or inf- acute infection. That we'll, we'll talk about the details of that in a moment. And then there's the topic that we're focusing on, which is acute otitis media, which is that acutely infected inner ear. So... 
I first want to talk about sort of the physical presentation of this disease. You know, I trained in Philadelphia, did some rotations at CHOP, and there I was taught that uh, bulging was the most specific finding uh, for acute otitis media, as was sort of a lack of mobility. Now, Daria, I'll be honest, no one in the ED is checking mobility. Is that something that you're doing? Are you checking mobility on a regular basis? Unfortunately, I'm not checking mobility on a regular basis. The last time I really checked mobility was in my continuity clinic and pediatric residency um, or uh, during a rotation at the ear, nose, throat specialist. So I think definitely an ENT is checking mobility, but Mm -hmm. the rest of us pediatricians largely probably are not. Okay. That's good to know that it's not just us in the department, but you guys wouldn't be checking that either. So then how are we making the diagnosis? Let's sort of look at some of the elements of acute otitis media and see how they come into play. First being erythema, redness of the eardrum. How does that factor into your diagnostic algorithm? I think it's definitely a component. Um, Certainly there can be erythema in an acute otitis media, but erythema can also throw you off because you can see it in a few other conditions. Your TMs can be erythematous just if you're febrile if you've been crying and screaming and coughing. Um, So there's definitely situations where um, erythema does not definitively diagnose acute otitis media. Okay, good to know. I feel like we see that sometimes clinically too. Kids come in for a completely other reason. They've been screaming and fighting you horribly and you look at their eardrums and both are kind of red. So how about effusion? What what does that mean to you for this diagnosis? Effusion for me... um, means it could mean either acute otitis media or just otitis media with effusion. So when you see an air fluid level or fluid bubbles, um, you know that something is going on, but um, it also doesn't definitively diagnose acute otitis media. Um, And so you want to look in conjunction for other exam findings or for the the history of infection or inflammation. Okay. And that's good to to recognize that that's how you're sort of diagnosing these as well. As we said, we're not going to be doing our pneumatic testing most of the time. So to recognize effusion, you're going to see that air fluid level, or sometimes you'll even see bubbles with behind the TM, and that's how you're recognizing it. And so as you're mentioning, it's kind of a prerequisite for acute otitis media, but it's not the end-all, be-all. It can be found in otitis media with effusion, which could be you know the sequelae of a URI, for example. Uh, What about bulging? How does that come into play? Bulging is definitely the most obvious uh, and most specific sign of acute otitis media. Um, So when you see the TM sort of bulging out at you in a three-dimensional way towards you in the in the otoscope, Um, and sometimes you can also see sort of yellow purulent fluid behind that. Um, But definitely, if I see a bulging membrane, uh, I'm most typically diagnosing acute otitis media. Okay, excellent. And so to bring that kind of all together, so you know, there's a couple of different uh, bodies that weigh in on the diagnosis of acute otitis media, but there's a pretty good consistency in terms of it requiring three diagnostic criteria. This is coming from the American Academy of Family Physicians and their clinical practice guideline, which we'll link in the show notes. But the three elements of acute otitis media are therefore a history of acute onset of signs and symptoms, the presence of that middle ear effusion with the most specific uh, there being the bulging, and then signs and symptoms of middle ear inflammation, which 
can be the erythema we talked about, but also otalgia or a lot of ear pain. So those three criteria uh, come into that final diagnosis of acute otitis media. So once we see it and diagnose it, let's talk about sort of the spectrum of pathogens for this disease. Now, the most common bacterial pathogens, if you remember from med school, are going to be strep pneumoniae, non-typable H flu, Meraxella, and group A strep. First question for you there, Daria. Am I right? Do you agree? I definitely agree. Okay. Um, I just want to point out that in the age of vaccination, um, we have PCV7 and more recently PCV13 that are directed against both first seven and then finally 13 different strains of strep pneumo. So as more and more children were vaccinated with that, over time, the incidence of strep pneumo-related acute otitis media has dropped. So now the um, actually most common cause of acute otitis media is non-typable H flu, although, of course, strep pneumo is still a major consideration. Okay. Oh, that that's actually interesting and worth sort of talking about. I was wondering or thinking about this as we get better and better with our vaccinations and have more uh, types to cover and uh, our global, you know, sort of herd immunity and things are going up, hopefully. Uh, there's a big debate in, in that realm we won't touch on today. But if we're taking out some of these major players for bacterial acute otitis media, is that leaving room for some of the other less common bacterial infections to then take over? Or is it, are we seeing more of a transition to like a viral otitis media? I think the former. I think the we're still seeing similar incidences in bacterial acute otitis media. I don't think that has actually changed with the advent of the PCV vaccines. So I think it's just that different types of bacteria are stepping into that void. Okay. That's interesting. And that's good to know. So I think that that kind of leads to sort of the next type of question I have as, as we go into this topic. And the reason for this podcast is, you know, there is certainly a time at which we start thinking less and less about acute otitis media. And I was thinking, you know, as children get older, is it that we're going to be seeing more viral otitis or is it that they're more likely to have, uh, you know, a viral URI masquerading as otitis media? And it really plays in nicely, I think, to sort of that that age group algorithm that you'll see uh, put out there by many and, and referencing here the one by CHOP, which we'll also put in the show notes. So, Acute otitis media diagnosis, there's kind of, they break it up into sort of three categories. If you see it and diagnose it for sure in the less than six month old, that's one where we're going to be treating actively. And this also feeds into the idea of uh, this watchful waiting, giving the patient two to three days to see if things kind of get better on their own uh, without an antibiotic course. So don't do that in the less than six month old. In the six month, the two year old, um, you know, if we have unilateral infection and the disease process is not severe, meaning they don't have a fever greater than 39 or moderate to severe ear pain, then we can consider watchful waiting. And then once they're older than two years old, we even consider that in addition if there's, you know, pretty mild bilateral disease. Uh, Daria, what are your thoughts on this sort of uh, age construct and do you follow this kind of to a T? So I think definitely um, I follow the, the you know, these CHOP guidelines are, are also in line with the American Academy of Pediatric Di- guidelines. So I do follow 
the recommendation that observation or watchful waiting is possible in certain age groups and in certain disease processes. So as you mentioned, unilateral otitis and if the illness isn't severe. In terms of age group, in the over two-year age group, probably, you know, two to five years, I, I still often treat, if, especially if it's bilateral otitis, um, because I still, I think the incidence is high enough in that age group. It, we're talking about incidence, um, the, it's, acute otitis media is most common between six to 24 months, and in, within that age group, between nine and 15 months is the highest incidence of it. And then once you get into your teen years, so after 15, the incidence of acute otitis media drops to about probably less than 3%, more like 2%. Mm-hmm. So in that age group, uh, I think you should be very careful about diagnosing bacterial otitis media and really thinking um, more about a viral URI uh, or even you know making sure you haven't missed otitis externa or herpes zoster or something like that. Okay, perfect. So that yeah, that circles nicely back around to that kind of question. Are we, you know, transitioning? Are we seeing more viral etiologies in older patients and things like that? It sounds like that's kind of a jump or a leap in that came from my sort of thought processes, but it's important to recognize what you were just saying and worth reiterating. So the peak prevalence of this disease process is in that nine to fifteen month age group. Um in the incidence is incredibly low as we're getting older, where you're saying, you know, a, a two to three percent incidence at age 15 or older. So we are really targeting that kind of younger age population for this, uh, this categorization and diagnosis of a bacterial otitis media. Absolutely. Okay. And just to go over that again, because it is a little uh, confusing, the things that we're talking about are watchful waiting and by age group. And the contraindications, essentially, to watchful waiting would be if they have moderate to severe otalgia or fever greater than 39. Diving into that a little bit, Daria, you know, that's kind of a gestalt thing. That's hard to make a consistent recommendation uh, across all practitioners. How do you recognize moderate to severe otalgia in these little youngsters? For me, I really have a conversation with the family and see how they're doing at home if the child is able to go back to their sort of daily living activities, so they're eating and drinking and playful and playing, then I think that that counts as non-severe symptoms. And even if that requires some treatment with Tylenol and ibuprofen, as long as they're able to get back to their daily activities, then I think that qualifies as non-severe. And if the parent is telling you that they're just not you know, not able to play, not able to sleep, not able to eat, then even even after treatment with Tylenol and ibuprofen, then I think that definitely qualifies as moderate to severe. Awesome. Actually, I really like that. So, you know, taking something uh, in an age group or getting a history and really getting an understanding of severity of pain is pretty limited. Taking it and making it pretty simple you know, are they able to be themselves? Uh, you know, certainly with a little antipyretic or pain medicine um, can can assist them there, but are they getting back to their normal? Are they playing normally? Are they eating and drinking their, you know, the things that they like to eat and drink? And if they're not, consider that diagnosis of moderate to severe otalgia because it's affecting their ADLs. Cool. So that, that defines severe disease, that severe pain or a fever greater than 39. And then this kind of watchful waiting 
the sort of two to three days to see how they do. Uh, to break it down by age group again, never do it in anyone less than six months when you're confident in the diagnosis. And then for the you know six month to two year old, if it's unilateral and it's not severe, consider some watchful waiting with a, a script to go home possibly. And if they're older than two, you know, definitely if the illness is not severe and possibly even in a pretty mild bilateral diagnosis. And in these patients, you're talking about, you know, good follow-up and or a script for home. Is that correct? Absolutely. So if the patient has good follow-up and is able to come back, um, you know, observation is always a, uh, a good option. I typically send parents home with a, what we call a SNAP or a safety net antibiotic prescription. I think that it's difficult for families to take off work and come back a second day. And I trust that, that you know, once we've come to this um, agreement, you know, and, you know, family-centered agreement that we're not going to start antibiotics right away, um, I think that they'll, I think that parents um, are often very excited to limit antibiotic use and mm-hmm. limit the side effects like diarrhea. And so I, I really feel like they will take that prescription home and not use it if they don't need to. Perfect. Uh, yeah. And I've done that a few times and the, somewhere in the back of my mind, I know they've done studies on the fill rate of these prescriptions. Some, some, I think have been sort of pessimistic that they get filled right after you leave their office, but it's still a valiant effort. And there is going to be some capture there, depending on how good you are at educating your patients, and it's worth doing it for antibiotic stewardship in and of itself. Um, But that's a nice transition, actually, I think, into, you know, what antibiotics then are we going to be using? And uh, tell us kind of your go-to, your top three. How do you you approach treating this disease? So my go-to is amoxicillin, and we use high-dose amoxicillin, which is 80 to 90 mgs per kg per day, divided into twice daily, so divided into two doses. And we use the that high dose of amoxicillin um, because it can overcome some of the strep pneumo um, penicillinase binding protein, you know, their attempt at getting away from antibiotics. Um, My second line is amoxicillin clavulinic acid, and that is used if a patient has received amoxicillin within the past 30 days, so had a recent infection, or if they have concurrent conjunctivitis. Um, that's because if you have both a otitis media and purulent conjunctivitis, you're more likely to have one of the non-typable H flus that has beta, that's a beta lactamase producing bacteria. Mm-hmm. And so, um, augmentin is the more appropriate antibiotic and that's the same dose. So you dose by the amoxicillin component of augmentin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 80 to 90 mg per kg per day and two divided doses. And then if you have amoxicillin, or um, augmentin failure, or you're penicillin allergic, then the next line would be ceftriaxone, um, which is a 50 mg per kg per day, uh, generally intramuscular. Uh, for three days, you could also use a different oral third-generation cephalosporin. Um, and then another option for those penicillin, penicillin allergic children is clindamycin. Awesome. Perfect. I think that kind of, no one's really surprised by those answers, which is great to hear. Um, basically, amoxicillin is your backbone. If you have a recent, uh, fit, either a failure of amoxicillin alone, or they had amoxicillin for another reason recently, you're going to use amoxclavulonic acid, trade name Augmentin. And if there's an allergy, you can use a third generation cephalosporin or Clinda. Cool. Exactly. Perfect. 
All right, so let's kind of come back to our kiddos, our three cases, and see what we're going to do. Uh, just a reminder, scenario one was that 22-month-old girl, fever and acting irritable. The fever was to 38.8, but easily controlled with Tylenol. The right ear is erythematous, bulging, and has an effusion. So I think this is a pretty clear-cut diagnosis of acute otitis media. You know, you're meeting all of your diagnostic criteria. So you have um, a bulging tympanic membrane with effusion, and you have those signs and symptoms of, of inflammation with the fever. Um, the question then of treatment, so she's 22 months old and falls into that category of between 6 and 24 months. It's just her right ear that's involved, uh, so unilateral disease. Um, and we see that her fever is 38.8, so less than 39. We don't have really good information about how severe her otalgia in, but it, it or how severe her otalgia is, but it seems like observation um, is certainly an option for her. And if you did opt to treat, um, you would start with amoxicillin for a 10-day course. Perfect. That's that's a great answer because that's what I think I would do. Uh, so I'm I'm glad that that fits. Uh, it seems like a pretty you know otherwise well 22 month old with the sort of fever being controlled easily by Tylenol. You think as well that hopefully the pain was or that would have come up in history. So a possible watchful waiting course depending on your conversation with mom or dad and their ability to follow up. Uh, so scenario two is the four year old boy. Uh, he's been having ear pain. It's been several days. He's well appearing without fever. And there's uh, so the left TM shows opacification, maybe some scarring and an effusion. So this seems like a pretty clear cut diagnosis of otitis media with effusion. And so that that it means that there's no acute infectious process. Mm-hmm. Um, so we talked about this a little bit before, but the otitis media with effusion can either happen you know, before otitis, so with just a viral URI, it can happen after otitis, so after you've treated an otitis media, acute otitis media, or it can happen just with some eustachian tube dysfunction in the absence of any sort of acute otitis media. Um, and the, so the hallmark is that you have that effusion, but you don't have any other signs of, of inflammation. So he doesn't have fever, he doesn't have a bulging membrane, it's not urethematous, um, and they've they've mentioned that there's some scarring. Um, there's also in, in some patients, you would also see a retracted membrane. So the mm. TM sort of pulled back around the ear ossicles. Okay. Interesting. And yeah, that's an important thing that I, I agree we didn't dive into quite as much as you possibly could. What a confusing list of possible definitions. Acute otitis media being an acute bacterial infection and otitis media with effusion meaning essentially fluid behind the ear, and you gave a great list of the possible causes, you know, post-URI, eustachian tube dysfunction, but not an acute infection. So this guy has otitis media with effusion and would not get antibiotics. Exactly. So the typically this type of thing resolves in about 80 to 90% of patients in three months. And you can tell the parents that in the meantime, the patient might have some mild hearing impairment, Mm -hmm. but since they typically resolve in that three-month period, there should be no um, actual impact on their language development skills. But just for, you know, something to know is that if it doesn't resolve in six to nine months, that's when a pediatrician would then refer to ear, nose, and throat physicians, um, 
for potential drainage of the fluid so that you're not dealing with, so you don't end up getting any language um, development impairment. Fantastic. I think definitely a little past uh, the thought processes of the uh, very narrow-minded emergency physician, but <laughs> it's valuable for us to know what what happens before and after us. You know, we, we want to know the step ahead of us and the step behind us. So uh, that's that's valuable to sort of let families know about these middle ear effusions and, and how they need to be watched. All right. So scenario three, the 11 year old girl, she's got cough, runny nose, fever, ear pain, had a fever of 1014. Uh, physical exam shows a lot of rhinorrhea, dry cough, but normal lung auscultation. And both ears are kind of red, left a little bit more than the right and the left has an effusion. Let's see. So this one is much more ambiguous, I think. Um, so just for the sake of argument there, I think you could think about both diagnoses of acute otitis media or uh, otitis media with effusion. Mm. So the things that point for me to just otitis media with effusion would be that um, she definitely has a URI, ears are erythematous, and there is an infusion, but there's no bulging of the mm. membrane. Um, but on the other hand, if you were thinking about diagnosing acute otitis media, she does have a fever, which could certainly be a sign of inflammation, although you're not seeing the signs of inflammation within the TM itself, so there, you're not seeing the bulging of that membrane. Um, and the erythema could be simply from, you know, her fever rather than actual uh, infection as well. I think in, when you look at her age group as an 11-year-old, the incidence of acute otitis media has really begun to drop precipitously. So this would be someone where um, I would probably diagnose otitis media with effusion and certainly strongly consider the observation or watch, watchful waiting um, method because I think this is someone who would probably improve over the next 48 hours without any antibiotic exposure. Perfect. That was, I designed that case to be that ambiguous one that we do often see clinically. And I think you, uh, you handled it very nicely and, and in a pretty clear, uh, succinct way, sort of outlined your thought processes. So it seems like she probably has a URI. She may have an underlying effusion or that effusion could be from the URI itself and doesn't necessarily mean that they have an acute bacterial otitis media. So that watchful waiting uh, makes sense to me. And, and uh, thank you for the, just letting us into your brain to hear that. I think that, went, that was really a nice, nicely outlined thought process and careful consideration of this girl. All right. So thank you for taking the time to chat with us. I'm going to sort of do a little summary points and see if you have any corrections or anything to add before we wrap up. All right. All right. So otitis media, we want to think about acute otitis media being that infection, that likely bacterial infectious process and differentiating that from otitis media with effusion, which can be post-URI, could be from eustachian tube dysfunction, etc. To diagnose this acute otitis media, there's sort of three categorizations that you need. You need a history of acute onset of signs and symptoms, the presence of a middle ear effusion, and the signs and symptoms of middle ear inflammation. Once you have that diagnostic criteria, you need to think about the age group of your child, kind of breaking it down by the less than six months, that we treat all patients, the six month to two years where we think about the severity of disease and severe disease being you know, severe pain affecting the ADLs or a fever greater than 39. And if it's not severe, consider watchful waiting. 
And then for the greater than two, uh, with the only additional caveat there being if you have a pretty mild bilateral disease, you can still consider watchful waiting. If you're going to give a script, it's going to be amoxicillin high dose as your backbone. Um, you can consider or use a, amoxicillin clavulonic acid in cases of refractory otitis media or patients that are in status post-plane amox. And for the penicillin allergic, we can use a third generation cephalosporin or clinda. Sounds perfect. Nothing to add or highlight. Awesome. I did a good summary then, huh? Well, I suppose I could add one thing. Go for um, it. When you're over two years old, the duration of therapy can drop from 10 days to seven days. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. Coming again back to our antibiotic stewardship. So if you can decrease the length of therapy, you'll have less, less problems with side effects. So a seven-day course once they're older than? Two. Two. Cool. All right, Daria, thank you so much for letting us pick your brain and talk about this. What can be a mundane topic, but I think we made it pretty exciting. Oh, absolutely. It's so exciting. Everyone's going to be pumped to be going in and seeing and treating their next ear infection. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening. Daria, we hope to have you back soon. Thank you so much for having me.